All right, so Haggai this morning. When was the last time you heard a sermon from Haggai? It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament, and but it contains a powerful, powerful message for us, especially in these days of prayer and fasting, which is what prompted my heart to go to this text to begin with. Many of you have been joining us now for two weeks on this uh, prayer and fasting time, and it's very appropriate to consider Haggai's message over these next two weeks. We're going to take it in two chapters, it's two chapters, and so this week we'll consider chapter one, sort of as we round out our fast this week, and then chapter two next week as we wrap up our fast. And I think the message here in this book will encourage us this week, I hope, through the exhortation that chapter one provides, and then encourage us next week with the encouragement that after our fast is over and after we've rounded out that season as a church, that we'll have great encouragement that God will continue to be at work. And so... Haggai chapter 1 this morning. Now let me just give you the context of where we are in redemptive history up to this point in the Bible. So this prophet, Haggai, comes to the people of Israel as they've already returned out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. So if you remember, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took most of the Jews into exile. And after about 50 years there in Babylon, Cyrus, the Persian king who came and conquered the Babylonians, brought the Babylonian empire to an end. And he was a little bit more disposed toward the plight of the Jews than Babylon had been. And therefore, he allowed them in the next year of his reign in 538 B.C., he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, which was 900 miles away, and rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. And as soon as they arrived in 536 B.C., they began rebuilding the temple. They got the foundation rebuilt. But about that time, the Samaritans, who were also in the land, began persecuting them. And if you read the book of Ezra, you learn a little bit about the nature of that persecution, which was they were sending messages back to the Persians saying, hey, these Jews are getting busy building the temple. You might want to keep an eye on that. And so the Samaritans started persecuting them and, and trying to raise false accusations against them and try to get the Persians to take action against them. So after the Jews got the foundation of the temple poured, they basically quit. They were done with the project. They took, they took some time off and began focusing on their own homes, essentially. And that goes on for about 15 years. And so after 15 years... The temple is still in ruins. There is a foundation there, but there's rubble everywhere. God's temple has not been restored. The people have been redeemed and released from their captivity in Babylon, only to go back to Jerusalem and focus on themselves. So 15 years later, God sends the prophet Haggai to them to deliver a message to them. And the message of chapter 1 is pretty simple, and it can be summarized this way. God did not free you from slavery so that you could focus on yourself and neglect his kingdom. So pour yourself into his kingdom. That's why he saved you. So it's, it's really a message on the priority of God's people. And the priority is the glory of God himself. So... Let's unpack chapter 1 with three headings. The first one is going to be the reality that we see here. The reality that we see in Haggai chapter 1. And the reality is this. 
that we, just like the Israelites of old, are prone to put our house above God's house. We see this in a couple of verses. Look at verse 4. Notice the word that comes from Haggai. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So he says, is it a time for you to focus on building your own house when God's house has not been built? Verse 9, Haggai says it again in the second half of the verse. He says, because of my, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So that we get the, we get the reality that's going on here. So they are taking, taking their attention that should be focused on building God's house, and they are focusing on building their house. They are giving their energies, they are busying themselves, as verse 9 says, with that work instead of the work that they were released to do. The timber that had been bought and purchased and brought to Jerusalem with a view to building the temple was now being used to build the houses of the people. And perhaps what Haggai is actually saying is much worse. Not only had they deviated from the specific command that God had given them to rebuild the temple, but they had actually employed the very wood that was meant for the temple to build their own houses. Not a lot of wood readily available in Jerusalem at that time. They had to bring it in. And so what it seems what seems to be happening is they are using the materials that should have been used for the temple to be used to build their own houses. Now I want to bring out a couple of observations here from this reality that was very that, that just provoked and challenged me this week as I was looking at this passage. You know, we might think as we read Haggai chapter 1 that these are a bunch of backslidden Christians. They're just lazy, they're indifferent to God. They just don't really care about God's glory all that much. I mean, they're probably not even regenerate. They're just, no. These are the most committed of the Jews. These are the Jews who, when Cyrus gave them an opt-out, actually went. Keep in mind, they had been in Babylon for a generation. And many of the Jews did not go. They're like, look, we're we're settled here. We know we like it. I know it's kind of hard and oppressive, but we like Babylon. We don't want to go to Jerusalem. We're going to stay here. This remnant picked up and packed all their stuff, left the only country many of them had ever known, went 900 miles to a place of ruin, Jerusalem, with a task to rebuild the temple. I mean, that's some commitment there. They moved their homes. They moved their families. And these people left all that Babylon offered And they took the 900-mile trip back to a ravaged city. And these were the people who were still prone to focus on their own lives above God's and God's desires. That's what's so rebuking is that the, the most godly among us can struggle with putting their own house above God's house. We're still so prone to focus on our own lives and give them the majority of our attention and time. If our home or family requires attention, we've got all the time in the world. But if we need help to disciple members or show hospitality or pray or bring a meal to a suffering family or come to a baby shower, ain't nobody got time for that. I'm busy. So, And these can be committed, godly people. 
A second observation is we often have plenty of excuses to justify those choices. Notice what they say in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not the right time. Don't you understand? We would be doing it if it was the right time to do it. We're not opposed to doing this. We we value the glory of God. We want the temple rebuilt. But we, look, tell God he can wait. We say, don't get me wrong. I'm all for building the temple. It's a great cause. The timing isn't right. We have so much on our plate just trying to keep our family together and get our home established. You know, and they, you might think of, you might hear excuses like this, you know. The Bible says that if a man doesn't provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. I'm just working hard and providing for my family. When the kids are grown and the bills are paid, I'll do more for the Lord. I don't want to violate the scriptures. Or, you know, this is a hectic season for us. The kids demand so much attention. Every day is taken up with meeting their needs. And someday when we get through this phase... Then we'll get more involved. Just not the right time. So the reality is, brothers and sisters, is that this kind of heart is resident in all of us. Can we just acknowledge that this morning? That this is our heart. Our heart is to be mostly committed to God. Somewhat committed. I mean, we we don't want to exclude him. That would be terrible. We can be committed believers who have made great sacrifices, who have walked with Jesus through many dangers, toils, and snares. And yet we can still have a heart that is prone to prefer our way to God's way, our timing to God's timing, our desires to God's desires, our home to his home. So that's the reality, that we too are prone to put our house above God's house. Here's the second point. What's the result of doing that? We looked at the reality. What's the result? What happens when we prefer to put our needs, our desires, our houses above God's house. Well, the result is, is that when we put our house first, we are left wanting and unsatisfied. But when we put God's house first, he is pleased and we are blessed. So let's see that here in Haggai chapter 1. Let's look first at when we put our house first, we're left wanting and unsatisfied. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's what I'm calling all of us to do this morning. Take a a stop here and let's just think about our lives. Think about what we're giving our time and attention to. Let's consider our ways. Notice what he says, verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So what is he saying? He says, you've devoted your energy to this. You've devoted your energy to paneling your houses and building your dwellings. You've sown, you've eaten, you've drank, you've clothed yourself. And there's no harvest or a little harvest. You never have enough food. You never have enough drink. No one is warm. And as soon as you earn your wages and you put them in your pockets, there's holes in your pockets and it falls right to the ground. In other words, your enterprise is not working. 
this priority has to change. Why is this happening? Why is this harvest coming up so little? Why is the why are they eating so much and not able to get filled? Why are they drinking so much and not able to get satisfied? Why are they clothing themselves not able to get warm? Notice verse 9. He says, "You look for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away." God did this. God did this. It says, "He blew it away." Notice verses 10 and 11. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Who's over the dew of heaven and the produce of earth? God. Who determines how much the harvest is? God. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the mount, on the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. I've called for there to be a drought because You prioritize your house above mine. Listen, brothers and sisters, if our priorities aren't right, expect God to intervene and discipline in our lives for our good. He says, because you have been absolutely and totally committed to yourself, I have been absolutely and totally committed to your failure. Here's why. Because if we stop working for God... If you stop working for God, he will make sure that nothing works for you. That's the principle. That's the principle. If you devote yourself to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing yourselves and earning wages, but neglect your ministry in the body of Christ, you will live in constant frustration and God will see to it. If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world, And do not spend yourself for the glory of God. Every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression and guilt and frustration in your life. You say, I don't experience that. I can give myself wholesale to my desires, my food, my clothing, my eating, my drinking, my sewing, my work. And I don't feel any frustration. Well, maybe it's because you're not a Christian. That's just a thought. Maybe it's because you're not a Christian. Because God disciplines those he loves and chastises every son he receives. And if you're not receiving discipline from the Lord, maybe you're an illegitimate son. So, but, but believers, brothers and sisters, as we engage in this and as we are prone ourselves to go back to putting our own desires first and leaving God's desires secondary, then we will be left. God will send the drought into our lives and it will be a season of dryness. And we will feel like the heavens are shut up. And we will languish and we will feel like we are under the discipline of the Lord. And you know why? Because he's your father and he loves you. That's why. He's your father and he loves you and he will not permit you to continue to walk in disobedience. He will withhold the rain. He will not bring a harvest to you. He will cause the money in your pockets to fall right to the ground. And you will be left wanting and frustrated. But then you'll... By God's grace, you'll wake up and say, wait, what am I doing? What am I doing? God, I'm sorry. I repent. Please forgive me for this season that I've been in of prioritizing myself and my own desires and what I want to do and just neglecting the the ministry that you've called me to, the life that you've called me to, to, to devote myself to you and your kingdom and your glory and your people and your church. I mean, forgive me for this. And the Lord will restore you and draw near to you and rip open the heavens again and flood you with grace. 
And so that's our God. He, he does that for our good. But notice the second result. That if we do put his house first, he is pleased and we are blessed. We're blessed. Notice verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Do you think if God's taking pleasure in it that they'll take pleasure in it? Do you think if God's taking pleasure in what they're doing, they're going to sense the pleasure of God in that? Absolutely. So God is calling them to say, hey, guys, I want you to pursue happiness. Got a pleasure program for you. Come on over here. Devote yourself to this. My pleasure is here. My glory is here. My presence is here. I will fill you up. I will bless you. Then he says in verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. When did he say that? When they obeyed him and got to work. And then he said, now I'm with you. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. And I will be with, I will be with you. That's all we could ever ask for, brothers and sisters. What we need greatest in our midst and in our lives is the presence of God. And we get the presence of God by devoting ourselves to the purpose of God. It doesn't work another way. We don't get the presence of God by isolating ourselves or giving a half-hearted pursuit to God's purpose. Those of you who have been reading along in the book, When God Comes to Church, which is a book we've been recommending that you read during this time of prayer and fasting, just yesterday... On page 128 in our reading yesterday, Ray Ortland, the author of the book, writes this great quote that applies so well to what Haggai is saying here to us this morning, what the Lord is saying through his prophet. Here's what Ray Ortland writes. He says, The struggle of a life spent for the glory of God through the restoration of his church and the amazement of the nations cannot, simply cannot, be wasted effort. God's word declares that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. But a life of self-protecting ease, a stress-free life of stinting, miserly investment, that life is a waste. Yes, sowing for the Lord is laborious, but we are going to give ourselves to something. Why not give ourselves to the only effort offering a payoff, both certain and infinite? Let's throw ourselves into the work of restoring God's church without regret or reservation. No false heroics, no self-pity, no longing glances back over our shoulder, no moaning about worldly opportunities sacrificed. Weeping sowers are the only joyful reapers. That is a word that can be spoken out of the prophet Haggai's mouth to this people in that year. Which is no moaning, no self-pity, All engagement, no looking back over your shoulder, longing to go back to Babylon or just go back to your paneled house. None of that. Throw yourself into my work and I will be with you and I will bless you. Yes, it is a life that is laborious. Yes, sowing is difficult, but a life of self-protecting ease and a stress-free life is a waste. And so that's what we see in the prophet Haggai as well. So that's the result. We have a negative and a positive. We've got the negative that when we put our house first, we're left wanting and unsatisfied. But that when we put God's house first, he is pleased and we are blessed. Let's go to the third point now. So we've seen the reality that we are prone to put our house above God's house. We've seen the results, either left wanting or left blessed. And here's the response. We must intentionally, deliberately, and continually Put his house first. 
put his house first. And we see that's the way the people responded. Notice verse 12. Then, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and jo- Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, so they were all moved, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Notice verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And the spirit, skipping down a few, a little, uh, skip over these again. It's at the bottom of uh, verse 14. The spirit of all the remnant of the people was stirred up, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So notice the, notice the progression here, what happened. After Haggai preached to them and said, look, this enterprise that you're about right now, this prioritization of your life is leaving you frustrated because God is bringing discipline, but here you can change all that and bring the pleasure and presence of God back into your life. And so here's what you need to do. You need to get busy on, the, on building the house of God. And so what happens? They hear this word and three things happen. Fear obedience, and a stirred heart. And all three of those things are very important. You know what? You have no idea how encouraging Haggai chapter 1 is to a preacher. You have no idea how encouraging this is. Why? Because every preacher goes through periods where we wonder, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this? I feel like I'm making a fool out of myself. Everything I, what, what is the point of preaching week after week after week after week? Nothing ever changes. But Haggai 1 shows that preaching changes things. Preaching changes things. And it's, it's awesome. So what did it take? It took fear, obedience, and a stirred heart. In other words, fear was the motivation. Obedience was the action. And the cause was a stirred heart. Now let's think about those for a second. So the cause, first of all, had to be this stirring of the heart. And this is a very, very wonderful biblical phrase. It implies this churning internally in the soul, this awakening, this shaking, this revival, literally, this renewal that's taking place in the people. They are hearing Haggai's words, and they are being stirred by what he's saying, unsettled, challenged. And then they're motivated to do something, but that motivation doesn't come from, yeah, that was a pretty powerful word, man. That was a pretty stirring challenge. No, they were like, God is saying this. And the fear of the Lord falls upon them. So when the fear of the Lord, that is reverence and weight and the glory of God, they realize we're playing with God here. Like we're ignoring what he told us to do. And so that fear comes upon it. Now it's, it's not a, it's not a cowering fear. It's not a, it's not a fear like I want to run away from God. It's a reverential fear. It's a, it's an acknowledgement of the weight and the glory of the one who is speaking to them. It's like if you walked into the, you know, the judge. You know, you're not, most people are not just going to, you know, cavalierly walk into a courtroom and, you know, there will be people like that. But if they do that, it's evidence they have no fear of the judge. Where's your respect, man? Where's your fear? Where's your reverence? You come in here, you know, sloppily walking around, cussing up a storm. Like, where's your... No, but with these people, when they encounter God, there's a, there's a sense of weight upon what Haggai is saying because the Lord is stirring their hearts 
and because they are fearing the name of the Lord. And they are acknowledging that it is him who is speaking to them. And the result is obedience. They do what God said. But they don't obey apart from the stirred heart and the fear of God. That's where obedience comes from. Obedience comes from a stirred heart and a motivation of the fear of God that leads to an obedient life. So how do we get that? Well, ultimately, we're dependent on the Lord for such grace. I mean, Haggai knew it. But we can move in the right direction. That's why we're doing this 21 days of prayer and fasting. And that's why Haggai doesn't just walk up on the scene and say, all right, well, I don't have any hope apart from God here. So I'm not going to say anything. Let's just pray. No, he gives them a word from God and he tells them to do something. He says, consider your ways. Consider, he says that twice in chapter 1. Do you see that? Verse 5, consider your ways. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So what he does is say, okay, let's step back and evaluate the investment here. The investment of time, money, energy, work, labor. Let's, let's evaluate the investment. The investment that you're devoting yourself to is a waste of money, time, energy. In the grand scheme of things, when God's house remains unbuilt. So he says, let's consider that. Is that a good investment? Good investment of your life, good investment of your time. And the people, but the Holy Spirit comes and they begin to, as they consider that, he begins to stir their hearts and they say, no, no, that's not a good investment. Wait, the Lord has delivered us. The Lord has brought us here. The Lord's glory is the most important thing in the world. We need to rebuild this temple and they obey. And so that's where it comes from. So while we can, we need, we need to and must depend on God's grace to accomplish anything, nevertheless, if we stop long enough and consider our ways long enough and get alone with God long enough and think over our lives and evaluate them in light of God's word long enough, things will start to change. Things will start to change. So the question then becomes for us as a way, let's, let's spend some time considering that, okay? Can we just spend about uh, three or four minutes here this morning considering our ways? I think that's what Haggai would want us to do. So let's pause and let me ask you a series of questions and you just think these over and Give them to prayer this week as well. How are you spending your time? These people had plenty of time. They had the same 24 hours as everybody else had, but they didn't have time for God. How are you spending your money? These folks claimed that they had to get their own houses built first, then they could build God's house. That was backwards. God says we're supposed to give him the first fruits off the top. We're to give him the best. We're to be managers of all that he has given to us to invest it profitably for his kingdom. Number three, what are your goals? What is it that you're aiming for in life? If you live to an old age, what do you want to look back on as far as accomplishments? What do you think about the most? What secretly occupies your thought life? Do you dream of getting rich, of achieving something, of some hobby or leisure pursuit? Do you think about the Lord and how he wants you to spend your life? Who are your heroes? Who are the ones you're seeking to model? Whom do you most admire? Whom do you want to be like? Who are your friends? Who do you spend time with? Who do you like to be around? Why do you like to be around them? How do you spend your leisure time? How does your leisure time reflect and affect your devotion to Jesus? You know, as brothers and sisters, we need to consider all of these things and ask ourselves these questions, be willing to evaluate them in light of God's word. Al Mohler writes about 
about us as, as believers and how our lives should be different in terms of our investments. And he writes, Christians must embrace priorities that the rest of the world simply do not understand. Christians must invest themselves in their church, in missions. These are distinctive Christian commitments. Our ultimate commitment is not to ourselves or to our own investments, but to the kingdom of Christ. Thus, Christians should always be ready to experience upheaval in their economic priorities and arrange arrangements because urgent kingdom issues can intervene at any moment. And that's exactly what happened here with the people in Haggai's day. So my question for us as we, as we begin to wrap up here is, are we, as we are considering our ways, how do we really know if we're prioritizing God's house or not? How do we, how do we know? How can we tell? Well, let's just take a, a look at a few, a few New Testament passages that will help us. Because, you see, we don't live in the period of redemptive history that Haggai lived in. There was a physical temple that needed to be rebuilt. You don't, God has not called any of us to go to Jerusalem and rebuild any temple. All right? In this age of redemptive history where we are now, the temple has its fulfillment in two places. The person of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. That is the temple that we are called to prioritize and build. That is a relationship with Christ and a relationship with the church. That is the priority. That is what it means in our day to heed Haggai's words to prioritize God's house over our house. And in case we need a reminder of that this morning, would you turn with me just to a couple passages in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple of passages here that remind us of what the temple is in our age. So the temple is not a physical building. It's a people, both individually and corporately. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? There we are. There we're the temple. Individually as, as believers inhabited by the Holy Spirit and corporately as a body of Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We also see this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's exactly what Haggai is saying. You're not your own. You were bought. You were purchased out of Babylon, out of slavery. You're now an exile who's been rescued, and you were bought with a price, so glorify God. Devote yourself to his house in your own body as his house. And in the church as his vows. Of course, the context there is sexual sin. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul's next letter to the Corinthians. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, Second Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So what is the first application of that? Prioritize personal holiness. Prioritize to, to pursue 
God, and he's going to have a word. We're going to have a word from Haggai next week on this very issue because he addresses purity in chapter 2. But So I won't spend a whole lot of time on that right now. But the, the priority is, you know, you're a temple of the living God. You must be holy. You must cleanse yourself from the defilement of sin. So God dwells in us as his people and individual human hearts, and together we are being built into the temple of the house of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21 talks about us being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. That is the church. And 1 Peter 2 5 reminds us that we are also being built as a holy temple. So here's what I want to say about these few verses we've looked at in First and Second Corinthians about what it means to prioritize the house of God. I think it means this. To make God's house the priority in life means that our number one aim is to make our body a fit dwelling for the Holy Spirit and to devote ourselves to building others in Christ so that their lives are a proper dwelling for the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Can I read that again? Can I read that again? To make God's house the priority in life means that our number one aim is to make our body a fit dwelling for the Holy Spirit and to devote ourselves to building others in Christ so that their lives are a proper dwelling for the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we do is we commit to being in God's presence, being transformed by him and then helping to transform each other so that we become a temple, a more blessed, pure, holy temple for the Lord. And we help others do the same. That's what this temple work is about. It's not first and foremost, did I come to the Sunday worship service? Did I go to the prayer meeting? This is as important as all those things are, but that's just external stuff. I'm talking about, yes, do that, but don't neglect the latter too. Don't neglect the importance of people work, of helping others to know God better and to walk with him more faithfully, even as you strive to do the same. So our goal is to know Christ at home in our hearts by faith and do all that we can to help others do the same. I think that's what at least it means to prioritize the building of God's temple. So one more text, Matthew chapter six, Matthew six. Let's go to the words of Jesus here as Jesus summarizes the message from Haggai to us this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, familiar passage. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Is that not what Haggai has been preaching? Isn't that the same thing? He just said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All too important word must not be overlooked in verse 33, the word, but. But he's contrasting something. So look back at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Haggai. Hear that? Eat, drink, wear. It's all in chapter one. Eat, drink, wear. For the Gentiles, unbelievers, seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God. See, there it is. He's saying, don't prioritize your house. I'll take care of that. You prioritize God's house. 
I'll take care of your needs. Because that's what holds us back. That's what holds us back. What holds us back from seeking first the kingdom of God is the anxiety over our earthly needs and our earthly wants. And we think we're going to lose something if we seek first the kingdom of God. Oh, man, life of drudgery. Here we come. Going to stink. Signing up for a life of slavery. It's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. It's as old as the garden. God is a killjoy. He is a killjoy. All the trees you may eat except one. Then Satan comes along and says, has God really said you can't eat from anything? You can't even touch it, can you? See? It's all about seeing that following God will lead a lot because he's stingy and he's not a good father and he doesn't love you and he doesn't provide well. And he doesn't take care of his kids. So you got to take care of yourself. So devote yourself to your life. Devote yourself to it. Don't devote yourself to what God would have you do. Devote yourself to your life because God's not going to take care of your life. But no, Jesus reassures us here. Seek first his kingdom. All these things will be added to you. You'll be taken care of. You'll have food. You'll have drink. You'll have clothing. You'll have your needs. You'll be happy. It says verse 34, therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow. Because right? that's what can lead. But what about tomorrow? What about what's my life going to be like in five years if I do that? What's my life going to be like in 10, 15 years? Will I get to the end of my life and regret it? Just don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let me close with this illustration. Maybe you've heard the story of a time management expert who was leading a seminar and speaking to a group of business students. And he had two large jars next to each other. Right? So imagine two large jars sitting right here. And he had several large rocks, like right here. And then he had a bucket of gravel, and they had a bucket of sand, and he had a glass of water. And he asked the group, he said, okay, so let me do this. So he, he, took, the, he took the two jugs and he said, which, ones should I, should, which stuff should I put in first? And several people said, you should probably put the water in first. So he said, okay, pour the water in. What should I put in next? Okay, put the gravel in. So he poured the gravel in, and it kind of sunk to the bottom, and the water raised just a little bit. Then pour the sand in. He poured the sand in, and there it's filled to about, you know, a quarter of the way there or something. He said, okay, now put the rocks in. And so the rocks, he started putting the rocks in, and he got about six out of ten of them in there. And he couldn't get the rest of the rocks in. He said, okay, well, let me do it. Let me do it the opposite way. So he took the big rocks, and he put them all in the next jar, put all those in. They all fit. And there was very little room left at the top. I mean, very, very little. And then they took took the gravel, poured the gravel in. It kind of went all down there. And then he poured the sand, and the sand kind of filled in. And then it was just, there was just a little bit left. He's like, there's no way I'm getting this water in. And he poured the water very slowly, and it all went in there. Everything got in there. And his question for the people was, what's the point of the illustration? What's the point? And he said, somebody responded, said, no matter how full your schedule is, you can always add more. And he said, no, that's not the point. <laughs> so no, we're not about workaholism and killing ourselves here. That's not the point of this seminar. The point is this. And he replied and said, no, the point is, is that if you don't put the big rocks in first, they'll never get in. If you don't put the big rocks in first, 
They'll never get in. You won't get them in at all. And that's the message of Haggai chapter 1. Put the big rocks of your life on your schedule first. First thing that goes is I'm going to worship and be with God's people. What does that look like? That's my priority. So I want to pray with God's people. I want to be with God's people. I want to have God's people in my life. I want to worship with God's people. That's the first thing on the schedule. Those are the big rocks. Because if you don't put them in first, they won't go in. The gravel, the water, the sand will all crowd it out. So you put the big rocks in first, and then you put the other stuff in. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. You will have time for everything else that God wants you to get done. But if you don't prioritize his house first, his kingdom first, his glory first, you will never have enough time to get everything in that you're supposed to get in. As C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Put the big rocks in first. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. You'll have the gravel. You'll have the sand. You'll have more time. You'll have your, you'll, you'll have your life filled up and blessed. And it'll be pleasing to God. But if you aim at earth, if you aim at the ground, sand first, the, 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 the lesser important things, the sand, the gravel, the water, important, need them. But they're not the big rocks. If you aim at those things, you won't get these things. So may the Lord help us and encourage us. And next week, I'm, I, I, my, my prayer, I know this week has been heavy on exhortation. And that was intentional because Haggai 1 is very much exhortation. Next week is encouragement. Big time encouragement to live out this priority of God's people as we look at the promise for God's people. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your patience with us and your kind fatherly exhortation to us this morning to look at our lives and consider our ways as we have been doing in this season of prayer and fasting. And we pray that as that we consider our ways and as we slow down a little bit to be with you and to spend more intentional time in your presence, we pray that you would speak to us about these matters, that you would draw near by your spirit and that you would work conviction where conviction needs to be worked and you would work comfort and encouragement where that needs to happen as well. We often need both. So we pray that you would dispense it as we need. You're the great physician. We pray that you would operate on us in these days as we need to be operated on in our souls so that we can live a true life that is pleasing to you, that honors you, and that reflects you and your glory to a watching world that desperately needs to see in the church something of the priority of God. We ask this in your name. Amen.